Hello everyone, good afternoon. Saturday afternoon here. This morning in our study group, we're studying the Alagadopamusutta still. We're studying it last week as well. It's a, it's an interesting one. Uh, the subject of today's discussion was views, views about self. And the Buddha said something interesting. He says, uh, He says, take any view as a support if it doesn't make you upset and cause sorrow and despair and stress and suffering. Take, take any view like that. But then he says, if he says uh, any view that when you cling to it doesn't uh, provide that doesn't make you upset or sad or sorrow suffer and he says to the monks he asks them do you see any such a view any such view and they say no hetang bante no venerable sir the Buddha says good monks I don't see any such view either And so it's a curious statement that no view is worth clinging to. No view is worth relying on. Wrong view in Buddhism is a very, very terrible thing, of course. The Buddha goes further here and says that all views are not to be taken as a support. And this, this speaks somewhat to the unique nature of Buddhist theory, Buddhist theory as being um, a very much practice, praxis, theory-based practice. So of course with wrong views we can see the problem there, views that are wicked, evil. There's no denying that such views exist that should be universally held to be immoral, unethical, and more to the point, a cause for suffering. A cause for suffering for those who keep, who hold them, 
cause for suffering for those who are the victim of those who hold them. We see that in the world today. Of course, it's always been around. And it, it without a clear teaching on views, it's easy to miss the importance in an environment where all views are to be respected and to be honored even in the sense that allowing others to have their own views of course, Buddhism does that as well. We allow, we don't go around, Buddhism isn't about changing others' views. And so in the world we find, and always will find, views and, and ideas and ideas about views that are problematic having a sense that one should follow one's heart and whatever one believes in is right for that's right for oneself so we we lose sight of the importance and the, the, the basic primary nature of views in relation to wholesomeness and unwholesomeness. Our whole direction in life is determined by our views, by our perspective, by our outlook on life. And we don't all have the same outlook. And not all outlooks are equal. Not all outlooks, not all views lead in the same direction. Views about simple things like killing and stealing and lying and cheating, views that these things are good. You see in some religious traditions, beliefs and ideas in the virtue of killing We see worldly views about stealing and cheating and drugs and alcohol, lying, immorality in general. I mean, engaging in things that certainly don't lead to happiness and peace and harmony and goodness, virtue. And so when you take as a view it's one thing to harm others, to harm yourself, but it, but when you take as a view that it's right to do so, you see you add you add a whole other layer of of evil. It's very hard to change your behavior and to change your direction in life without changing your views. So views are considered to be the first step 
in Buddhism, overcoming one's views, purifying one's view. Wrong views are uh, of two sorts. There's views about things like evil deeds, karma, basically. Put aside evil for a second, just talking about karma. We have views that are contrary to the orderly nature of cause and effect. Ignoring, denying, going against the nature of the effects of, of our actions. That when we engage in certain attitudes and behaviors, there is an orderly nature to the results we can expect from them. Ideas about the orderly nature of reality. The other set of views is about self. The other set of views can more be described as our perspective on the nature of reality, on the framework of reality. So karma relates to the orderly nature of reality, but it goes hand in hand with a basic understanding of the nature of reality. What is the nature of reality? What is the framework? for existence, what's really going on every moment, every day, here and now, in this universe, what is the meaning of the universe, what is the nature of the universe? Often our views relate to what is the purpose in the universe, then we come up with narratives about God and heaven and hell. And wrong views have, have mostly to do in this sense with our perspectives on self. And so the Buddha says, cling to any view of self that when you cling to it, it doesn't lead to suffering. And he said, do you see any such view? I said, no, I don't. we don't see any such view. He said, good, I don't see any such view either. Given that there is no, you can't find a self, then it's foolish to cling to such a view. This is hard for to understand because of our, well, because of our view, our perspective on things. The whole point about the teaching on self and non-self is to change our perspective. It's not about the theory of what is and what isn't. It's about our perspective on the on the nature of the world, our way of looking at things is based on the formation of selves, of entities, things. We conceive of our body as a thing, we conceive of our mind as a thing, our self as a thing, and every other thing in the world is a thing. 
people, places, possessions, problems, objects of our desire, objects of, of, of aversion, fear, And so a self, uh, a soul, fits right in there. It's one way of talking about the world. It's quite practical. It's not like Buddhists go around calling each other something other than me, you, he, she. It. It's a valid perspective in a practical worldly sense. It just doesn't get to the nature of reality. It's not a perspective that frees you from delusion and ignorance. It's not a view, a perspective that leads to wisdom. And so right view in a Buddhist sense, first of all, it's, it's, it's not a view because, well, because of three things. Right view should should have three f factors. First of all, right view must be a view of the truth. Must be a view that is in line with the truth. And so ev every religious or spiritual or philosophical tradition, I think, to some extent anyway, claims such a view. And so really anyone can claim that their doctrine isn't a, isn't a view. But the second thing is it has to be based on your, your realization of, of the truth. Right? Because a view says that something is true. But if you cannot give evidence or proof of its own truth, the view is just a, a belief in something to be true. But there's, of course, something unique to having seen for yourself that something is true. And when you see for yourself that something is true, you can't really say it's a belief. It no longer really counts as a belief. If someone holds their hand out to you, closed fist, and says, what's in my hand? Or they tell you what's in their hand. Now you can have a belief and a view that you know what's in their hand or that they're telling the truth about what's in their hand. But if they open up their hand and show you what's in their hand, it's no longer a view or a belief. It's in a different category. So even Buddhist theory and doctrine is not to be taken as a as a view. It's not to be held as a view in the sense that once you've learned it, you should cling to it. Buddhist teaching is to be seen for yourself. You shouldn't just 
learn about the Buddha's teaching and say that you know the truth. This will lead, just like any view, it will lead to stress and suffering, disappointment. In fact, it can lead to even more disappointment and stress and suffering as you know what's right and fail to align yourself with it. It's even worse when you know the truth but are unable to live your life based on it. Because intellectual knowledge of right and wrong and good and bad and truth and and falsehood isn't it doesn't have any real effect on one's attachments and aversions doesn't really have one any real effect on one's inherent perceptions of the world perceiving things as satisfying stable and controllable. So you feel more anguish. Not not to say that that's a bad thing. It's, a, it's, it's actually good to be aware of how out of touch we are with the truth, but it's not enough to know the truth intellectually. The third thing about right view is that it has to be essential. Right view in Buddhism is a, a view of the Four Noble Truths, meaning that not just any truth is, is valid. It's just as much a wrong perspective to be focused on what is unessential, like finding out the truth about the stars or atoms, subatomic particles. There are truths to be found there, observations to be made, but they pose no benefit to one's psychological well-being. And so these three, in order to understand view in a Buddhist sense, it's the, these three factors really have to be taken into account. Of course, it has to be based on the truth. You can't just have an opinion. Well, that is a problem because it is a common thing to hear people say, I believe, without any concern for evidence. In my opinion, the way I look at it, it's not really a relative thing. It either is beneficial and good helpful and true or it's not doesn't matter what you believe but more importantly it has to be something that you have taken the time to understand and to realize for yourself so that it's no longer a belief but it's an understanding and third it has to be essential it has to be in, in in regards to what's important. 
suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering and the path which leads to the cessation of suffering. Really, whatever you believe about these four things, these are what is essential. Anything outside of these is not essential. And so that's why the Buddha called these the Four Noble Truths. You don't have to believe in Buddhism, but in any any path you might follow has to find answers to these four things. These are the only four things that are important. Broadly construed, because if it doesn't relate to suffering or freedom from suffering, there's no real point to it, no real benefit to it. If it's not addressing the problem, then it's part of the problem. Just some thoughts on views. In in Buddhism, obviously, our means of overcoming views is related to the practice. The Buddha gave five things which support a list of five things that support and cultivate right view. And they are ethics. So a person who has moral ethics. Without them, your mind and your perspective is going to be so unstable and chaotic that you'll never be able to see the truth, let alone find it. Suttang, you have to have some direction. Either you're an enlightened Buddha who has found the truth for yourself, or else you have to have gained some direction from others. Three sagacha means discussion, getting some feedback, talking to people, asking questions. Our study group is not just reading texts and listening to each other read, it's also discussion, and that's important. Number four, samatha, your mind has to be concentrated, focused, quiet tranquilized. And five, vipassana, you have to see clearly. You have to undertake the practice which allows you to see clearly. This is how you cultivate right view. Just some thoughts. It's an important topic. I think if, if you take nothing out of away from this, the, the the most important thing to take away is the importance, the primacy of views. Primacy, the, the most important thing is not our our mental illnesses like greed and anger, delu greed and anger, depression, fear, anxiety, all of these things. It's our perspective on them. Even a sotapanna is even someone who has. followed the Buddha, even someone who has become, what do you call, someone who has become enlightened, or who has entered onto the path to enlightenment, the stream, a sotapanna, even they still get angry and greedy sometimes. But what they've done away with is a, an incorrect, a, a perverted, a, a corrupted perspective, a skewed perspective on things. They see things clearly, they, they understand 
the nature of reality. You see how greed and anger lead to suffering. They've given up something fundamental about delusion, ignorance. Because it's one thing to get angry, it's another thing to feel self-righteous about it. True evil comes from the self-righteousness about anger, about greed, the, the, the identification with anxiety and depression. I am anxious, I have depression. Creating these, turning these things into monsters. Giving them an entity. Reality is rather based on experiences. If you see them as just experiences, they're, they're manageable. There's something we can work on. So the first thing you must do as a Buddhist, as a Buddhist, is to straighten out your view. All right, enough talk. On to the questions. Again, today we have a whole team. So I'd ask uh, the chat now to be limited only to asking questions. Anything else will be removed without prejudice or with prejudice if it's mean and, and unpleasant. You might be removed from the chat. We reserve the right to put people on timeout if they can't behave. And if you can, um, of course, first of all, this is meant to be a meditative session so try to stay mindful if possible you can close your eyes you don't have to read the chat or the questions or anything like that and try to keep them questions about meditation keep them about your practice if they're about something you're curious about or less likely or quite likely to not answer them if they're about worldly things, etc. Try to be mindful when posting questions. Uh, you're, you're, you're giving people who are volunteers, you're giving them work, so try and be respectful in framing the questions. Carefully check your grammar and spelling and punctuation. Keep them short, to the point. Try to post only what's a question. We don't need bong. This isn't the place for long discussions about yourself or your situation. Possible, just ask your question, simple as possible, and we'll try to get to as many as we can. Right, I'm ready whenever you are. Olivia again is our asker. While practicing mindfulness and noting during daily life, I've experienced periods of no thought in conversation that make it hard to talk to others. When present, my mind is still or blank. Do you have any tips on what to do? So this is something that you probably will overcome over time. It's just a matter of gaining some sort of flexibility. That has nothing to do with being mindful, but it's a sort of intermediary stage as your mind starts to grapple with the idea of being mindful. There's many other things that come along. 
you can become very concentrated, not because of the mindfulness, but because of the way the mind interprets the technique. So its application of the practice can be somewhat heavy-handed, also because of its um, inherent state, what you bring to the practice can often lead to these states. So the best thing is to try and note them when they happen, to try to be a little more vigilant about being mindful as opposed to um, blanking out. You know. Ultimately, the the what I what I can just say is that we're not perfect beings, and so we're we're going to malfunction once in a while, no matter what. Mindfulness without mindfulness, either way, we're we're imperfect, and so these are just part of life. I mean, it's not it's not that's not a a debilitating problem. It's something that you really have to acknowledge and maybe apologize for spacing out, which is something that we do. and be a little more flexible, but it takes practice as well to be mindful and present, truly truly present, you know. So that's the whole goal, really. It's the ideal state, is to be present. You say, when present, my mind is still blank. I can see how that could be. It sometimes conversation goes where uh, the person you're talking with is talking about something that doesn't arouse any connection in you for whatever reason. So to, to some extent, you just have to reevaluate what it means to hold a conversation. If someone asks you a question, then you have to take that question in and answer it. Often you you might not have any opinion. You can just say you have no opinion. You find you talk less. I'm not in an environment where I can sit down and meditate currently. Would you suggest mentally noting my experiences instead? Yes, I guess I'm wondering whether that means like on a day-to-day -day basis you're never able to, or you mean right now when you're typing this question. But if you mean like in general, in your life in general, that's somewhat hard to believe, I guess. I would suggest that you try to find time. The, po the point being that if that's the case, that's 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 unfortunate because... There's some great stability to be found in doing formal practice. You might even say necessity for most people. And if you're absolutely unable to do that, it's unfortunate. And I guess the only answer would be to mentally noting experiences in your daily life. But I would be skeptical and suggest for most people you can, if you really are intent on cultivating mindfulness, you can and should try to find time to to formal practice. The environment shouldn't it sh shouldn't be a defining factor. You can sit down and practice more places than you might think. 
Whenever I ride with my family, they play such vulgar music. What could I do to remain mindful when this upsets me? When you're upset, you can note upset or disliking. But, but when you hear things that might upset you, you can also note just hearing and then to some extent they won't upset you. And you can cultivate the skill of seeing them just as they are. Don't look at it as your family playing vulgar music. Look at it you, as you hearing certain sounds, and they're just sounds, and as you reacting to those sounds. And it can also be a sort of a narrative in the mind about how bad, how vulgar it is, etc. You can note all that as well. So just views and perspectives, judgments. If you break it down to what's really there, you, there you find there's nothing to get upset about. More importantly, you find that getting upset is not actually helpful to you or anybody. It's not actually a solution. Whenever someone is continually being irritating just to see me get angry, what should I note? You should note whatever's there. I mean, if you are angry or irritated, see, someone cannot be irritating. People act in such a way to irritate you, to evoke irritation. So if they do those things, you note your, your awareness of those things. If it's a sound or a feeling, if they're poking you, for example, if they're waving in your face or seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. You should note all of those. And if you are irritated, if that does arise, it's not them irritating you or them being irritating. People can't be irritating. If there arises irritation, then that should be noted as well. You see, it's, this is perspective. This is view. Your view determines very much how you're going to respond to things. If you see it as them being irritating, you don't have a solution except to get rid of them. <laughs> which is how we normally deal with things, and that's why there's so many problems. We're always at war with each other. If you see it as irritation arising, then you don't have a problem. You just got irritation, and you can just say irritated, annoyed. Sometimes I can notice the three marks of phenomena in meditation. However, that knowledge seems to me only intellectual. Is there any advice to transition from intellectual knowledge into real knowledge? Or are patience and diligence in the practice my greatest allies? Well, patience and diligence are great allies. But um, it sounds like you're trying to use those things as cudgels, as tools to transition from intellectual knowledge to real knowledge. What I mean by that is that somehow that's your goal. And that's a problem. It should not be your goal to see the three characteristics. And that is the goal of meditation, but your goal should be the practice 
which allows you to see things as they are. The goal being seeing the three characteristics just means uh, what you will see when you see clearly. A big problem is the intellectual, and this is, you know, it's a good question, but this is how the intellectual causes problems, because any conception we might have intellectually about the three characteristics bears very little relation to how it actually is perceived. You can't translate one into the other, which is which which, which makes this a good question, because it's recognizing that there is a, a disparity there. So if you're intellectually thinking about these three, you should just let them go and try to just see things as they are. Once you see things as they are, you can interpret what you're seeing through the three characteristics. And you may be doing that as well. What I mean by that is just that that's not a part of the practice. It's not something you should do regularly. But it's something that you can really best do when you're having trouble when the meditation is, is causing discomfort or, or uh, is disconcerting, because that's what the meditation is going to do. It's going to surprise you. You're going to su be surprised by how quickly things can change, and that's impermanence, right? You're going to be surprised uh, by how much stress and suffering you're causing yourself, the things that you used to think the behaviors, the attitudes that you used to think of as pleasant, observing all of them as how stressful they are. You'll be surprised by how uncontrollable, frustrated even, by how you can't control and how trying to control things just causes more suffering. You'll be surprised by how there is no self to anything, that, that things arise and cease. Often things that we thought were ours and under our control turn out to be just momentary illusions. Momentary experiences that arise and cease and leave nothing in their wake. How can one let go of someone? The meditation practice seems to get stuck when all the thought patterns continuously cling to the person. So this is an example of the idea of non-self. The goal in the practice is not, or your goal should not be to remove should not be to let go. So, so look at the, I mean, look at the question here. This is a common question. How can one let go? It's a very common question, but it's wrong. It's the wrong question. Letting go isn't something you can do. Letting go is something that happens when you stop doing. Specifically, when you stop clinging. So, how can we let go? It's, it's not a bad question. It's just you can't look at it as something you're going to do, something you're going to to effect. It's something that's going to happen to you when something else happens. You're going to let go when the clinging stops. So, I mean, it maybe seem like mincing words, but, but doing that means uh, understanding 
seeing the clinging as, and the object of your clinging as impermanent suffering and non-self, seeing it based on the three characteristics, seeing it in a new light, seeing it more clearly, seeing that there is no entity. So you, your change in perspective means that you no longer see the person. Where is the person? Suppose you're not with that person, right? The easiest way. What are you going to have? You're going to have thoughts that you conceive of as them. You're going to have images that you conceive of as them. You're going to have memories. You're going to have feelings that you associate with towards them, like what you feel towards them. You're going to have narratives and ideas, roles, who they were to you. But all of these things turn out to just be moments of experience that arise and cease, and there is no person behind any of them. And that new perspective, that way of looking at things, removes any sort of clinging or craving. And there's no clinging to any of that. The object of your clinging is none of those things. And if that's all you can find, then it turns out there's nothing to cling to. So the letting go is affected by seeing clearly what is actually there. That there is no self-permanence or 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 good good to be had from it no happiness or or satisfaction to be gained from it when you see that these things are ephemeral arising and ceasing so when your thought patterns are continuously relating to clinging that's not a problem the problem is that you put meaning on that. You you apply the meaning of the person. The first step is not to get rid of the craving. It's to see the craving for what it is, which is what you start to do in meditation practice. You don't start by getting rid of the craving for things. You start by seeing the craving as impermanent suffering and non-self. That doesn't make it go away. That changes your perspective on it and changes the way you interact with it. Instead of saying, oh, I love and miss this person, you say, oh boy, look at this feeling coming again, 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 and again. This is unmanageable, unwieldy. Your perspective starts to become more accurate, with less baggage. How can we easily forgive? Well, it, it's a that's a pretty ambiguous question. Some things are easier for people to forgive than others. Some people are easier to forgive than others. I think you need to be a little bit more specific. Um, I mean, I can just talk about forgiveness and what allows people to forgive and what prevents people to, from forgiving. I'd say a big part of it is uh, clinging to self. I didn't deserve what you did to me, that sort of thing. If a person clings very much to self, they're going to have a hard time generally of forgiving. If a person is less clinging to self, they're going to be less concerned about what other people have done to them or do to them. Like Sariputta said, Sariputta is a good example of forgiveness. He he was 
accused by a monk of of hitting him. This monk didn't like Sariputta, and so Sariputta walked past him, and the edge of his robe touched the monk, and the monk went around saying that Sariputta had hit him, which was technically true, but also very much a lie. And Sariputta said, you know, such a thing would be possible for someone who you didn't have any concern for what this person was was saying about him. He said that such a thing would be true if for someone who clung to themselves, clung to self. But for me, I regard this body, this being. He said, like a, he said, imagine there were a young man or woman who was well dressed in clean clothes. And then someone were to hang a dog around their, a dead dog, he said, a dead dog around their neck, carcass of a dead dog. So that's how I regard this being. I have no love or attachment to it whatsoever. It's just something I have to carry around. He said, it's not likely that I'm going to do something like that. How do I note distracted while I am distracted, lost in some thoughts? You always note things after the fact anyway, so with distraction, obviously, you're not going to be able to note well. But it's a skill. Sometimes you're able to catch the thought halfway through. Sometimes you're able to catch the thought just as it arises before you start getting distracted. But sometimes you only catch it at the end, after you've already spent some time being distracted. And that's fine. Whenever you can catch it, you just note it, and you'll get better at it. You'll get better at recognizing things. And as you get better at recognizing thoughts, you'll be able to catch them before many of thoughts have chained together. It's just a skill that you get over time and with practice. In meditation, I sometimes find my mind wanders overwhelmingly. I try to go back to the rise and the fall of the belly and note thinking, but thoughts are still overwhelming and hard to calm down. What do I do? We would note something like distracted or overwhelmed is a good one. Hard to calm down is a giveaway. It's a problem. You have to note wanting, and if you're frustrated or upset or disliking the fact that you're not calm, that's much more important than calming the mind down. This isn't meditation to calm the mind down. This is a meditation to see clearly. That's not to say that it won't calm you down. It will, in fact, calm you down. But as long as your intention is to calm yourself down, you're going to be missing the truth. You're going to be missing the the reality of what's present. So it's un unworkable as a practice. You can't do things that way. You have to let go of desire. You have to well you have to be mindful of desire to calm down, not take it as a as a tool. This isn't a thing that you can get because you want. There's no wanting that is going to help you get in this practice. You have to be flexible.
When I send the mind to the place of itching, I find the itching coming and going and not constant. Should I only note when I feel the itching happening and stop when it stops temporarily? Yeah, just go back to the stomach rising and falling. If it comes back, go back to it again. It's not magic. These kind of questions are always a little bit problematic to me, I find, because there's no hard and fast answer. Like It's not like doing it the way I tell you to do it is going to solve all your problems or solve any problems. Just think of these as good practices. Try and go back to the stomach. Think about what you're actually trying to do here. It's not magic. Just apply it as a practice. When I send the mind to the sitting posture, sometimes I can't recognize the sitting and other times I can't. Is this because I'm expecting to have the same experience of sitting as before? This is because of impermanent suffering and non-self. It's a good example of seeing the three characteristics. So don't be discouraged by that. That's starting to see the nature of how your mind works. Why isn't it always like this? I mean, you could be expecting. It's more like if that happens and you are expecting, you'll be frustrated. But it's happening simply because that's the nature of reality. It's not under your control. It's not permanent or, or constant, predictable. It feels like in order for the noting to be proper, I have to wait for the experience to happen. Is this always necessary? Yeah, that's what it is. It's reminding yourself of it's a it's creating a proper response to things. A a prop by proper means um, an ad accurate response, because our ordinary responses are things like liking and disliking and identifying. They're they're adding something or or sort of skewing it in one way or another. The only way to not skew things is to note them just as they are. Let seeing just be seeing and so on. Is it possible to get to a mindfulness level of seeing 100% clearly if you're only lying in a hospital bed? Of course, yes. Yes, absolutely. I guess not, of course. It may not be obvious, but Absolutely. Posture doesn't really have anything to do with it. Any of the four postures or any posture at all is possible. While I try to note everything, my speed of working decreases. When I have to do something quickly, I lose my mindfulness. May I have some advice about this? Yeah, there's no, I have no answer for you. Quit your job and become a monk, maybe? <laughs> it's probably the best advice. But that's being a little bit tongue-in-cheek. If you, if you have to keep your job and you're not ready to give it up, you're just seeing the, the, the compromise you have to make. It's good that you see it.
I mean, you will get better at it, of course. So it's not it's not just a compromise you have to be with, you have to settle with. What is it going on in my body when it goes numb and feels a vibration when I meditate? I would say it's most likely a numb feeling and a vib feeling of vibration. That is to say, it is what it is. When you feel numb, just say numb, numb, or feeling, feeling. And same with vibration, vibration, or just feeling is fine. Unpredictable. Whenever something feels strange, it's a sign of impermanence. What the heck is this? This is new. That's a sign of impermanence, showing you that things are not always what you expect them to be. Unpredictable. Anything could happen. You could die the next moment. I haven't been meditating lately, and I feel like I'm going back to my old ways and habits. Any advice? Start meditating again. If you're interested, I don't know if you've read our booklet, but I would recommend doing that. Assuming that you have, you could sign up for an at-home meditation course. Assuming you've done that, well, it's time for me to get into the scolding tone of voice and say, do your homework. Get back to work. Don't don't, you've done all this work already, don't let it be for nothing. No, it's not. See, the thing is, meditation you've done has changed you. Don't be discouraged. You'll get back to it. If you have done all that work, you'll get back to it. Don't be negligent and don't let yourself just keep slipping away, but don't be too discouraged. Be content that you have taken interest in the meditation practice. And try your best, whenever you can, to be mindful. Don't have expectations for how much you should do, or this sort of thing. Whatever you do, do whatever you can do. Can one reach Nibbana in lay life? Yes. How are we doing? We have a few more about the practice. All right, let's go through them. We're almost out of time. When we note thinking, does that indicate that we are not the thinker and we are simply aware of our thoughts? Um, maybe, sort of. I mean, I just, I hesitate because you don't want to get too intellectual about it. Don't overthink it. If you want the theory behind it, yeah, that's the point, is that 
instead of seeing it as I'm thinking this, seeing it as a thought arising, I mean, just seeing it as thinking without any baggage or uh, any views attached to it. Can I meditate incorrectly? I think I have meditated incorrectly for at least six months. I'm trying to be the observer, but sometimes I get sucked into my thoughts and waste my time. So I wouldn't worry so much about trying to be the observer. That's just a bit of a distraction. Just try and apply the technique. If you haven't read our booklet, I'd recommend doing that. If you want to do an at-home course, that might help. That will certainly help, in my mind, to help you practice correctly. Um, but as far as getting sucked into your thoughts and wasting your time, that's part of what you want to see. So if you see yourself sometimes doing that, then that's a good thing. The fact that you see that is a good thing. So don't be discouraged by that. Just keep seeing that. Keep seeing how you do that. And the more you see that, the less inclined you'll be to do that. The more you see how useless and futile and unpleasant it gets. We've reached the end of the questions about the practice, Bhante. Okay. Good questions. Thank you for your help. Thank you, Chris and Max, as well. Olivia, Chris and Max, our team. Thank you, everyone who asked good questions. If you asked questions that weren't answered, it's most likely that they just were outside of the purview of, of what we are, what these sessions are about. So apologies for that. There are other ways you can ask questions in our on our website. There's a question and answer forum. You could come to our study group if you want to ask questions about Buddhist theory. Or you could meditate so that you let go of your questions and focus on the questions that are important, that matter to you, that really are important to you. Thank you all for coming out. It's great to see so many people. I think we're hitting about a hundred viewers now at a time, so wonderful to see everyone so keen to come out to the Asadu. I wish everyone you all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. <laughs>